Today's guest is a British actor, most notable for playing ruthless boss Alan Johnson in Peep Show. He's also starred in Doctor Who, Babylon and Safe House. On stage, he's performed in various Shakespeare productions as well as starring in his own play, Sancho, an act of remembrance. It's my absolute pleasure to be joined by Patterson Joseph. When I found out I was going to be interviewing you, I tried to cast my mind back to when I first saw you on screen. And I think I would have been seven years old. Oh, cool. uh, waiting to watch the Doctor Who series finale back in 2005. There's an army about to invade this station. I need every last citizen to mount a defense. Don't listen to him. There aren't any Daleks. They disappeared thousands of years ago. What is it like to be part of a TV show that's such a, a national institution? I feel like I'm one of the luckiest actors in the world because I got I get to be doing, you know, a lot of strange and odd things. So everything just comes at me as a surprise. I've got no plan. So it came out of left field and one of the rare moments where you just get offered a job. This is like the holy grail for actors, you know. Oh, you're offered it. Oh, you're offered it. But actually, most of the time I audition like everybody else. But this was offered to me, and I suppose it was because um, somebody there knew me and knew I could do this job. And it was brilliant because I got there thinking, oh, Doctor Who, Schmock to Who. I mean, I've watched it. <laughs> I did as a kid. John Pertwee was my was my was my doctor. Um, I kind of lost interest probably post Tom Baker. You know, got on with life, teenager, twenties, whatever. And, and when it came back, I was like, oh, I'm curious because I like Chris Eccleston as an actor. Yeah, I didn't know person but I liked him as an actor but as soon as I got on set it was all about oh my god I can look at can I go in the TARDIS am I allowed to go in the TARDIS <laughs> oh okay and I walked into the I'm like my god and then suddenly there's a rush of nostalgia you know as a kid watching this thing and then to be killed by a Dalek sorry if it's a spoiler for anybody who's not seen that scene <laughs> it's been a while I think it's okay <laughs> it's a dream man and, but what I wanted was the full zish because I'm very good at dying. I've been practicing since I was a teenager in my bedroom on my own. And uh, this is before the internet. And so I had, <laughs> I had this um, brilliant death that I knew how to do the scream, the dialect scream. I'd be a skeleton, of course. I kind of remember, you know, none of that. They just didn't, they, I guess they thought it was too painful for the audience to see the death of Roderick. You went on to work with Christopher again on Safe House. So I imagine, right. you're, I imagine you're quite good friends now, right? Yes, very good friends. We, we, we describe ourselves as, as brothers from another mother. We're very similar sort of working class uh, backgrounds, entering a profession that was largely middle class and um, a little alien to us. So we both share stories, different methods of dealing with it, but both of us, you know, had challenges in that. And um, yeah, we, we contact each other as much as we can, you know, with kids and work and, and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's a, he's a good man. He's a really good man. And he's got... Um, a beautiful soul so it's not just nice to meet somebody who's really good at what they do and you've always thought they were good at what they do but when they're solid people as well it's like double bonus that's really lovely have you yeah. ever wanted to portray the doctor yourself in in doctor who well i mean i auditioned for it so sure yeah, yeah. way back when um it's a slightly uh controversial story so i suppose i'm gonna have to uh <laughs> I'm going to have to edit a little bit. Basically, I was uh, working in South Africa 
and uh, David Tennant was giving up the Doctor Who slot. Um, and then my agent called me to say, uh, don't answer the phone if it's the Daily Star because they've got you as the next Doctor Who and they're bothering us and everything. I was like, what? That's hilarious. So I sort of just emailed all my friends going, ah, they're the crazy thing. They think they're a bunch of fools. And then they texted back saying, no, you're number one on Paddy Power, you know, the betting agency. I was like, oh, this is hilarious. And the best thing about it, to be honest with you, not that, oh my gosh, you've got me hungry for it, because they hadn't asked me to do anything at that point, was just that there was no vitriol. There was no, not him, oh my God, not him, or not a black guy, can't have a black dog. Nobody said anything. It was just like, oh yeah, that was actually, oh yeah, he did the Market of Carabas in Middleway. It's quite Doctor Who-ish in that. So I just thought it was just a positive like ego boost for me. And I just rode on that for about three weeks. And then they, they called me when I was I'd headed up to North, Botswana, north of South Africa. And um, I was doing another job there. And then they said, can you come and audition? So I auditioned overnight, took a plane, <laughs> took a plane to London uh, on a Monday, came back on a Wednesday. And it was just weird. Um, the audition process, I won't tell you about, but basically, um, yeah, it was Matt Smith who, who got it. So it would have been a yeah. very... Uh, a very different uh, doctor uh, to to his, uh, and I and I guess it just didn't fit what they wanted. That makes sense. Okay, moving from one iconic British TV show to another, I have to talk to you about Peep Show. Of course you do. It'd be really ridiculous, right? If we got to the end and you hadn't talked about Peep Show, I would have gone. Can can I talk about? <laughs> good, 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 good. So you played Alan Johnson, obviously. The I did. Head honcho of of JLB. Um, yes. Is it strange? acting to camera in that POV style? Initially, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it, I was called on to do it the other day. I had a, was doing a, a spaghetti Western in Italy and I, and I was called on to, uh, to point a gun down the, you know, the barrel of the, of the camera. And, yes. the camera. and it was just like, this is very, very natural to me. And I know a lot of actors when they go, it's really weird when they ask me to stare at the camera. It's like, it feels weirdly normal now. Whereas of course yeah. at first it was odd. And I've spoken about this before and I'm sure the other boys have and girls have, you know, we used to have head cams in that first series, like sort of miners lamp things. <laughs> and, they, and, and, and then there would be the, the, the uh, camera operator with a script, with a sort of monitor next to him, handheld. So he'd be behind you. Meanwhile, doing all the dialogue and they're, they're going, don't look at him, don't look at him, look down the lens. <laughs> it's really weird. And then we managed to get it so that people would know to hide behind the camera. You know, when new people came in, it was always like, what, eh? I can't see. But you just got used to it. And actually it was better for me because I was, a, I'm a terrible giggler. And and I, I my concentration, which used to be great, man, when I was younger, is just wafer thin. I was going to talk to you about that because um, I heard an interview with Robert Webb and he was saying that out of everyone in the cast on set, you corpsed the most. I can't deny it. I can't deny it. I swear to you, I mean, that's why I said, Ryan, I used to be amazingly concentrated. Um, but I, I think it was just, I hadn't really done a lot of comedy on screen and uh, not anywhere else either, actually, even though it's something that I knew that I loved and would like to be in. Um, but in our profession, there are a lot of pigeonholes. And if you do serious stuff, they think that's what you do. And if you do comedy, that's, they think that's what you do. Whereas, you know, you look at somebody, well, just one random example, a lovely Olivia uh, Coleman, who's obviously one of our cohort in Peep Show, she can do everything. And I think a lot of comedians, funnily enough, are really good, if you like, straight actors, as we say, you know, like drama actors. 
Steve Carell is, is a great example. Is that why can they do that? It's because, you know, you, as, a, as, a, as a somebody who likes comedy, I'm not talking about me, but those guys, they understand human beings. Yeah. They have to. Whereas how can you make somebody laugh if you can't pinpoint the thing that's funny about them, you know, mm-hmm. or funny about a character? So I think that's why um, I, I loved it so much, but also felt a bit like an outsider. And, and that's why I think my concentration would always go, because I'd be like, we never do this on drama. We never do this on drama. Can I say one thing, though, yeah. that did surprise me? Comedy is more meticulous than drama. In terms of the lines, this is funny, that is not funny. You know, is that normal pooing you're doing, Mark, is, is funny? Mm. Are you having a normal bowel movements? is perhaps not as funny? Is that normal pooing you're doing? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Doesn't sound normal, Mark. Doesn't smell normal. It is, honestly. This is bollocks, Mark. You know the credo. Illness equals weakness. You're off the team. I don't know why it is, but it's very strict. So there's no, for me anyway, no improvising on these things. It's just like, this is the line written, honed to perfection by the guys. So I'm just going to say it, you know, and there's less room for sort of fudging things as you can on drama. You know, if I, if on drama, I'm going, look, I really hated that you did that. Or you went, I, I really didn't like that you did that. Hated, liked, didn't like, and didn't. It doesn't really matter as long as the emotion is there and it's yeah. believable. But with comedy, it's like that word. It's that word, not that word. Yeah, it, it's so to do with timing and linguistics, isn't it? Um, it completely is, yeah. Yeah, and that comes to my question on Johnson as a character, because obviously Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong created the character, they wrote mm-hmm. the lines. I wanted to know how much input did you have on forming Johnson as a character and his personality traits? This is a tricky question. I mean, I think that what I do is quite simple, which is what did they want to do? What did they, how, who have they written here? Can I be that guy? Is there anybody, sometimes it, I feel like, is there anybody I know who's a bit like that? And I don't really know anybody who's totally like that, but I have met some people who are a bit like that. Um, and they, they swore blind that it was based on a mate's uh, boss, but he, he, would, he would call people the W word quite often, their whole team, he'd come out and go, you've done nothing, you bunch of, I don't care about your lives, you stay all weekend and you get those numbers up. He was that, like, wow, that's a real person. So, <laughs> That, that started it off and then you sit with the other guys and girls and you do the work and you realize, oh, I can pitch it this way, but actually Johnson's a bit larger than life here. So even though these guys are playing it quite, you know, brilliantly uh, sort of straight in a way, Johnson could be a little warmer, you know, a little crazier, a little more, <laughs> a little more. And because he's so, so like cameo, like there's only a scene of him, you can go quite far. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I just went further and further. Alan! Hi guys. Hi. Just want to drop by and say have fun. Tonight should be a free fire idea zone. Watch a DVD, eat some pizza, fuck each other. I'm serious. Fuck a chicken if that's what it takes. Watch a chicken fucking horse. Mm. What? You think the guys who invented Google sat around watching Trumpton? And then the one thing I suppose I added was because I mean the dialogue is the dialogue. It's on the page, isn't it? So how does it sound in a human being's mouth? Um, and <laughs> You know, his words, his creative swearing and insults are so, uh, they're so heavy that you've got to have a kind of uh, sort of force behind it. You know, you can't just, you can't just speak it like me and go, oh, you are a bunch of turkey lovers, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you have to go, yeah, don't, uh, and you've just got to do it in that way because it, it just doesn't, if you like, come off the page in the same yeah. way. 
And then I realized that I knew a lot of um, uh, people who would uh, train, get trained in sort of management or leadership stuff in America. And then they come back with a slight weird twang. <laughs> so I sort of developed, <laughs> I sort of developed this kind of transatlantic thing. You know, and it's, it's like, it does it badly, he's from Berkshire or somewhere, you know, but he, he's got this kind of, you know, oh, take the uh, the red eye to LA, you know, and then that, that became, if you see series one and two, it was a bit, but it became a lot, the more I, the more I did it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of it, but it's the words of Jesse and, and Sam really, really is. Mm -hmm. And do you have a favorite Johnson line or scene from the show? No, I've got loads of them, but I suppose the one, the one that makes me laugh the most because it's so disgusting and so him, is is when is when he he steals Big Sue's, well, no, he buys Big Sue's rents. Big Sue's. <laughs> I'm not going to beat around the bush, Jeremy. I want to make you a real life, indecent proposal. An indecent proposal. I want to sleep with your girlfriend, Jeremy. It's like every time he says his name and they say each other's name, that that also makes me laugh, Jeremy. That's <laughs> <laughs> all you need. <laughs> they hate each other. Yeah. Um, but I steal the big twos, and then uh, he comes round to the house, and I'm in the horrible stilky bathrobe. Johnson, Jeremy, <laughs> and he says he asks me, you know, what's going on with big twos? They say, yeah, and then he puts his hand in his. Oh, it's horrible, and says, oh, she came round to give me a piece of her mind, and ended up giving me a piece of her. What the hell are you? Suze came round to the office to give me a piece of her mind and ended up giving me a piece of her ass. And, and that, to me, is, is so quintessential Johnson. It's disgusting. It's funny. You hate him, but you also sort of love him for his sort of boldness. Yeah. Of course. I think there's a lot of characters in Peep Show like that. You love to hate them, don't you? Like Jeff. Oh, Superhands. Like, you wouldn't want Superhands as a mate. Not really. You really yeah. wouldn't want that, that chaos bringer in your home. But what yeah. an entertaining friend he would be. <laughs> yes. I think my favourite Johnson moment is when he's briefing Project Zeus to Mark and he's doing the Tai Chi. Hi, Alan. You wanted to talk about... Oh, I'm sorry. Don't be alarm, Mark. It's just Tai Chi. Take a seat and I'll just power through. Should take 45 minutes. I'm done in 10. Stick that up your dojo. I think the line is, stick that up your dojo. I love that one. <laughs> Brilliant, such a yeah. brilliant line delivery. I can only say that I briefly tried to do some um, <laughs> some uh, Tai Chi when I was very young uh, and that was all I was remembering. That's my only contribution to that scene. The rest is Sam, Sam Bain, Jesse Armstrong. <laughs> every, <laughs> every horrible moment, um, especially the Charles and Camilla stuff. And if we succeed, I'm gonna be Charles and you'll be my Camilla. I'm going to be Johnson's queen. If the public will accept me, I'm going to be Johnson's queen. And how do you think that Johnson would cope with lockdown and working from home? Oh, he, he would be thriving, or at least that's what he'd be telling us. He'd probably be drinking himself into some sort of early grave. But really, the front would be, this is marvellous for me. I get time to really think about my project. You know, he would really see himself as... Um, you know, king of lockdown, this is great. This is all gonna work out for me. And you probably make some money somehow. Oh, yeah. even if it's a PPE, selling some dodgy PPE, or, you know, being one of those companies that gets a franchise. <laughs> it's horrible to laugh at it, but for ventilators and just never delivering them, you know. Mm. That's, that's the kind of, uh, I think he would, he would succeed. Yeah. He would succeed, unfortunately, definitely, one of those, definitely. yeah. Any way to earn a crust. So 
a project of yours that I was quite late to watching, being as I was only two years old when The Beach was released. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. So, so I would have watched it first around five years ago, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I just wondered what it was like to play Keaty and to be part of a Danny Boyle project of that scale. Wow. Well, again, you just keep highlighting all the best jobs of my life. I mean, that was my <laughs> certainly the best movie job of my life. Um, I've done many, but that was a doozy. I mean, if I never get to do another movie, um, I would still be very happy with that on my CV. The great thing about doing that role was <clears throat> I, I had no nervousness about working on a big Hollywood film because it was actually just Danny. And Danny and I had worked in the theater. We'd done stuff at the Royal Shakespeare Company mm -hmm. years before. And then also I had, I was 35, you know, so it wasn't like I was a sort of green kid just coming out of drama school. Whatever. I'd done a good 10 odd years of it. Yeah. So I wasn't phased by anything particularly, but it was mainly having Danny, who I'd as I said, I'd worked with in the theatre and, the and TV before that, on set. And the way he works, which is uh, so incredibly, uh, he's very avuncular in some ways in that he, he he's, he's like everybody's you know older brother or uncle and he gathers people together in a way that everybody feels that they're a part of it so if you watch that movie everybody feels that they've got a role they know what their story is they know why they're there they all get a little look in you know and um and it was just a delight with four months in thailand uh i i was fitter than i've ever been cornell who was our fitness trainer he had a lot of work to do by the way mm. when we all got there um, we had two weeks of, of uh, boot camp, which did everything, everybody a lot of good, particularly me. I mean, when I look at my body, I'm like, I don't know who that is. I never had that kind of body before. I never wanted to particularly. That sort of cliche of the muscular black man. It like, doesn't really feel to me, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, but I, I literally have never been more buff. Neither, I would suggest, and I'm thinking he'll probably um, recognise this as Leo, because, uh, you know, we were all, you know, coming off, a job or a holiday or whatever and we suddenly we had to be naked for most of the time so it's like wow we better look good so we had two weeks of boot camp and Cornell who was our boot camp trainer is one of my very very best friends still and what, what was it like working with obviously you mentioned Leo there uh, mm. at that point in his career he would have been what 20 21 he was older than that he was about 20 oh, okay. I think he might have been 23 actually so he was young okay. it's true but he had his 24th birthday as far as I remember 24th 25th birthday while we were out there Okay. Cool. And super generous, if you like, you know, not just in work, but outside of the work context. Perhaps, I mean, I didn't know him before, but perhaps it was because he was thousands of miles away from the heat of California, you know, the, the heat of, of his fame, you know, and he was at the height of his sort of youthful fame, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Proper heartthrob icon on calendars and, you know, that guy. And the only thing I remember about about him that surprised me slightly because everything else is just like he's just a you know an American kid really lovely American kid who loves his his his, uh, his rap and his uh, his music and hanging out with his boys um, and his granny and his mum at the time yeah, yeah so lo <laughs> lovely kid just a kid nice kid but I, I said I remember having this conversation with him uh, amongst the few that we had where he just said look I don't want to um, be that Titanic guy you know or the Romeo and Juliet guy only I want to do I want to do other work you know I want to do work that's a bit tougher and a bit you know I'm not always a sort of golden hero you know yeah this the beach is the first time I've been sort of allowed to to do that so that's interesting when you think about how his career moved on from there yes uh, definitely with the Revenant and Wolf of Wall Street and more yeah, yeah. Uh, demanding characters 
characters that are like anti-heroes, characters that you're not sure, even that character, Richard, he's not a hero. He really isn't, he's a colonist and he's, uh, you know, he's kind of slightly empty-headed. Sort of God, my whole life flashed before my eyes. Really, I had nothing left to offer except for pure reflex. Pure reflex and mankind's basic drive for survival that somehow shouts, no, I will not die today. And I do also remember him saying, because uh, I think Rafe Fines had said, well, he's got to be in some newspaper report, you know, he's got to be careful about, you know, what parts he plays, blah, blah, blah. And they were in the makeup truck, I remember at one, uh, makeup catamaran uh, and uh, he'd said uh, he'd said why are people always trying to give me advice why are they always telling me what they think I ought to do and I just thought that was so wise it's like he wasn't being bratty about it he's just like why are you you don't know don't know you why are you pontificating on how I should be dealing with my life or what parts I should be taking and I thought oh that's a guy who's who's sound and solid in himself and uh, he's proved to be just a really great actor actually yeah that's great I would like to finish the conversation uh, talking about Sancho, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so this is your passion project. I yeah. will be honest, I hadn't heard of the person in history before or the character mm -hmm. at all. Um, mm -hmm. Would you mind just talking me through the character? Sancho was born on a slave ship in 1729. His parents died very early. We don't really know much about him, to be honest. Mm -hmm. There's like a, par a paragraph or two in a preface to some letters that he wrote later in his life, which made him famous too. But the, um, the wonderful thing about him is that even though he only lived to be 51, he managed to achieve quite a lot in his life. He was obviously uh, born uh, as a slave, but achieved his freedom, uh, mainly through his own sort of intellectual pursuits, which he was allowed to do because he got to England and yeah. was, uh, was the sort of pet, as a lot of those 18th century posh people had. He was the sort of pet to these three spinsters. But he ended up in his life becoming a musician, um, a writer, he tried acting, um, and eventually he was working for the Duke of Montague who worked for the king, for, in fact, for the, the Georgian kings. Uh, so he was quite sort of, he was in the sort of upper echelon or he was mixing with them, but he also had a black wife. So he knew that community too. So his, yeah. his spread is really just great. And then in the end, he ends up um, having a grocery store, which meant he was a property owner, which meant he could vote. There's very few people could vote in those mm. days. No one who, did, who had any property, no women uh, could vote. Um, and so he's what, the first black man that we know, um, first man of African descent that we know to vote in 1774, the first time in 1780. But he's also a funny guy. He's just a funny, funny man. He makes up words. Uh, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a songbird. There's loads and loads of pop songs, really. They're like jigs and reels and mm. minuets and cotillions. And there's lots of description of how to dance, you know, like line dancing stuff. So it's like, how could he be so jolly, given that he's in the middle of the height of the slave trade? And yeah. it was a kind of, I call it a sort of, <laughs> I call it a sort of militant joy. Like he was determined to be happy despite everything that was put on him. So yeah, that's my man, Ignatius Sancho. And I've just completed um, the first draft, I suppose you could say, of um, a, a novel on him. So lots of detail in there. Uh, that is a labor of love. Uh, and then I've got the play, which I might put on again, um, and, uh, and, a, and hopefully a TV series if, uh, if all things work out. That would be excellent. He sounds like such an interesting character. When you- Oh, he is, yeah. Yeah, when yeah. you first came across 
his history. He must have just, you know, come amongst a treasure trove of information. And I, obviously, there's not there's not much kind of stuff there, so that must have been tricky. Yeah, you got you hit the nail on the head. I mean, to be brief about it, I wanted to uh, do some historical stuff, even if it was a play or whatever it was. I didn't know what I was going to write on uh, a, a black history in the UK because I knew that there was. I'd heard rumours that there was black people here before. So 1948 and the famous, you know, Caribbean immigrants that came on the Windrush. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I just got this book called Black England by Gretchen Holbrook Gersina. And that book, Black England, Black London, it's called in, in America, it's had so many stories from Roman Britain all the way, you know, all the way through. And, part, and then Sancho comes up and he's just like, this is a, it's a gift to a writer. There's so much happens to him and he's so articulate. Hopefully, I'll get the word out and more and more people will know about him. I hope so. It sounds super fascinating. Other than Sancho, what's next for you? You mentioned the Spaghetti Western you've just been shooting. Yeah, yeah, that was just wild. I mean, I don't know. I'm superbly um, confident that it's going to be a lot of overacting on my part. But it's, um, you know, Sergio Leone's films, A Few Dollars More, you know, Fistful of Dollars, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Those kind of movies are movies that my dad was obsessed with, so I watched them endlessly. And to be in one and to be playing that kind of Lee Van Cleef kind of character, the black hat characters we used to say, you know, it was just absolutely gorgeous. And then being able to do an American accent, which I don't very often get a chance to do, although, you know, I'm quite comfortable with it. And then, but in that particular kind of Clint Eastwoody way, you know, you are they opening your mouth where everything you say is just like a grumble from here somewhere. You know, oh, it's just like, oh, well, I get to do this uh, and fire guns safely. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a dream. It's called That Dirty Black Bag. And, um, and I play a sort of uh, gold obsessed engineer, but really it's mostly about uh, a bounty hunter who puts his victim's heads in a bag. I can't wait to see it. It sounds like. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be. He, I don't know whether people will go, is that that? Because it, everything that comes out of me is so odd, or whether they'll go, huh? Where's Johnson trying to talk American? <laughs> He spent another few years in LA doing seminars and, and lectures. <laughs> and now he's fully in. Now he's fully in. Yeah. yeah. Patterson, thank you so much for the interview. It's a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Very easy to talk to you, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye.